Oh man, I don't even know where to begin introducing this episode. My guest, Bob Babbitt, launched Competitor Magazine 30 years ago, then the Muddy Buddy series, then a radio show, a podcast, and the Challenge Athletes Foundation. The strategies he used to grow all of those are simply brilliant. So before you tune out thinking, oh, I'm not going to start a magazine or an event, just give this one five minutes and you'll be hooked. The ideas and methods he used are relevant to any business that wants to grow and see their entire industry succeed. As he put it, it's all about creating the win-win-win-win-win. And if you can capture more than one of those wins because you're controlling several of the outlets, all the better. Grab your pencils and your crayons, kiddos. It's time to take notes. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. All right, Bob, I first met you at a recent product launch event, and I kind of walked in during lunch, sat down next to you, and when I found out who you were, uh, my head was exploding on the inside because, you know, I run BikeRumor.com, which is a cycling media, and so I've long been fascinated with the business model of Competitor Group, which owns Velo News and a couple other competing titles. So when I found out that you launched Competitor Magazine, I've immediately had a million questions. So as way of introduction, you launched uh, Competitor Magazine in what year? Actually, June 1st is our uh, 30th anniversary. Wow. Started in 87. Okay. First edition was June 1, 1987. Started the company probably about a month before that. Right on. And when you did, it was what type of magazine? What was the, the focus of the content? Well, it was interesting because um, I had been working for a magazine called Running a Triathlon News that had just been purchased. And I got a free publication distributed primarily just in, in San Diego, Running a Triathlon News, and in L.A. And then um, what happened was the magazine was purchased, and the guy who bought it collected the money that was owed to the magazine and closed the doors. So basically, myself and my partner, uh, Lois, when we became my partner, Lois Schwartz, she had been the art teacher at the school we taught at as a PE teacher and before we got into the magazine business as employees at Running a Triathlon News. And so we were out of a job. And I went and met with the guys who own Southwest Cycling, which is a free publication here in California, and California Bicycling, that was another free magazine here in the state. And I went and met with both of them and said, if we did a magazine that combined running, triathlon, and cycling, I think that could be pretty popular. And both of them had, they had very well-established magazines. They're like, listen, we love cycling. We wouldn't put a skinny runner on the cover of our magazine, and this triathlon thing's a fad, and it's going to be gone in about five <laughs> years. 
so at that point we came back to San Diego and we had some friends and advertisers called us into a meeting and gave us a check for $17,000 and said, go start your own magazine. And so we, you know, got 200 square feet of office space under 20,000 pounds of bike racks in a guy's garage. And we were paying $200 a month. And we started the first edition of competitor, which the idea was running triathlon and cycling. That was June of 87. And we grew that from one edition to eventually uh, competitor magazine was in 11 markets with half a million circulation. And the idea was they had national magazines like bicycling magazine and triathlete magazine and runner's world magazine. Well, we were the, we were the welcome mat. We were running triathlon cycling. When adventure racing started, we were there inline skating. It didn't matter if it was somewhat connected to endurance, then we were going to be all in on it. And we were nimble enough as a small group to, to immediately get involved with whatever sport came our way mountain biking and it was it was a blast so we were we looked at ourselves as a uh, as a different business model because there were subscription-based magazines and we weren't subscription-based and back in the 80s if you were a free magazine you were considered a penny saver a throwaway there was no value to it so i had to change that perception if we were going to get national advertisers we needed to be considered equal to those guys and when i looked at the when I looked at our paper, we were a glossy magazine, glossy cover with newsprint inside. They were glossy throughout. But when I looked at the cover photos, our cover photos could stand up with what the other guy, the national magazines were doing. Our editorial, I had great writers. So it was, okay, it's the, it's the distribution model that is different. And I looked at what was happening in the world of television, and you had ABC, CBS, and NBC. Those are free. Their business model was we create great content. We offer it to a big portal, large, large, uh, we distribute it large uh, to a large group for free and advertisers are paying for the people we're reaching. And then there was a subscription model like ESPN, which had at that time, you know, you had to subscribe on the K through cable to get it. And in my mind, there really wasn't a, a way to say ESPN is better than ABC, CBS or NBC. They're different. It's a different model. So that was became my pitch. And our pitch was, hey, yeah, we're free, but people are going down to Jamba Juice to pick up my magazine. People are going to Rubio's, which is a uh, health mex uh, restaurant here in, in, in California, to pick up our magazine. Is there a business model where, you know, some Boy Scout is going door to door selling subscriptions to magazines? Is their business model any better than mine? I don't think so. <laughs> So what really turned it around for us is, uh, you know, Nike, when we first started the magazine, Nike had been with running a triathlon news and they uh, took the back cover for the first three years of competitor sight unseen, which uh, I will always be loyal to, to Nike for doing that. I, when I called the, the gal at the agency and said, I'm coming out with a new magazine and I can't even give you a copy. I don't have, I don't have a copy yet. They, they bought the back cover sight unseen and just believed in what we were doing. Do you think you could and, have um, launched without that? Uh, we would have launched without it. We, you know, we, it's not like we were business guys. We were, my partner was the art teacher to public, at a private school, and I was the PE teacher. So we had no business background anyways. We were flying blind, but we loved the sports. We felt that the, these were life-changing sports. I know it, you know, when I finished Ironman in 1980, it changed my life. And even though there was only 108 of us, I knew this sport was cathartic. I knew it was, there was something about it 
that made you feel better about yourself, made you a better parent, it made you better, uh, better at work, it made you a better employer. Everything that was good came out of participating in these sports. So that was, that was something we knew. And the fact that 95% of all magazines went out of business in the first year was something we didn't know. So ignorance was bliss. <laughs> and as we grew competitor, and, and things happened organically. We, uh, I, I started covering um, some of the wheelchair athletes, some of the wheelchair road racers, a guy named Jim Kanab in particular. And he had an attitude, right? And you know, he'd been hit by a uh, car when he was on his motorcycle, but he'd been an Olympic trials pole vaulter, and he considered himself an athlete. And he was like, listen, I'm out here racing. I'm training. Why should I be treated differently? I'm not just out here for fun. I want to get paid. If I win the race, I want to get paid. And you started seeing, you know, the number of other wheelchair guys racing. And their stories were usually were, were usually very, very it, they touched a nerve. You know, the fact that it wasn't just some guy who ran fast. It was a guy who overcame something. And every single day, just getting out of the house was, was a, a triathlon for, for someone like that. And he changed the perception of what someone could do as a wheelchair athlete. And I, I love that. And that became a big part of what we did. We were the first magazine to, to showcase a wheelchair guy on the cover. Uh, back in, you know, in, in 87, Jimmy was, was on the cover of uh, Competitor Magazine. And actually, he might have been on the cover of Running in Triathlon News. And then we had him again on the cover. And then we had a guy named Craig Blanchett winning a race. And Craig was a wheelchair guy with no legs. And I remember us sitting going, gosh, what, what's going to be the response? What's going to be our pickup rate if we have a guy with no legs on the cover of the magazine? I was like, well, you know what? We'll worry about that later. We need to do it. This is, this is the story. This guy, Craig Blanchett, is a, the just-do-it athlete from Nike. He just won this big race here in Southern California, and he's got a great backstory. So you know, we, just, we did a lot of different things, and we, we looked for stories. We looked for people who were more than just an athlete. And that's, uh, you know, and then we were lucky enough to be there during John Tomac and Ned Overend and Tinker Juarez, sort of the high times of, of mountain biking and Dave Scott and Mark Allen and Scott Molina and Scott Tinley, the big four from triathlon. And yeah, the yeah, legends we were, of the we sport. there, the legends of sport. We were there and we were, you know, we, we were sort of, we were their buddies and we had an obligation. I felt our obligation wasn't just to be, and this is a mistake I see a lot of the, the big corporations making now who, that are buying these what used to be niche companies, is they're looking at it as, you know, what's the ROI? What do I get out of this? And they aren't looking at it from the perspective of we're, we were growing a sport. We weren't just growing the, you know, our own bottom line. The idea was if a, it all started to meet with the race directors. If a race director in Southern California was successful, then retail in Southern California was going to be successful, which meant if there was more triathlons and grand fondos and things like that, people would be tuning up their bikes. They would be buying bikes. And then when retail is successful, because there's more events, manufacturing, Nike and the big companies would look at that region and go, there's a ton of events there. We need to invest more in that region. And that became one of our things was we grew Southern California. And then when, um, uh, because you guys were sort of a, a regionally based publication when you started, right? We were regionally based, yes. And what we realized, or, you know, for a while there, 
you know, we had uh, Chicago had a magazine called Windy City Sports, and it was Rocky Mountain Sports, and we had a loose association of the independent um, magazines, the regional magazines, and we realized after a time that, you know what, if, if, if uh, Nike advertises in Windy City Sports in Chicago, it doesn't mean they're not going to advertise in San Diego or L.A. with competitors. It took us a while to realize that the big companies were buying regions of the country. They needed to invest in all the regions. So what we did was we created what originally was called the National Sports Network, then Gen A Media and Marketing, where my rep in Southern California would handle all the West Coast uh, publications. I'm sorry, would handle all the West Coast advertisers. So he'd go up and see Nike and Adidas and Cytomax, Cliff Bar, and he would sell them for all of the magazines. Around but, the country. But at that you time, know. you had no ownership in those other publications. This was just and, the, right. the economies well, of we, scale. We, we, exactly. It was an economies of scale thing. And for you know, someone who was, usually if someone's starting a if someone started a bike shop, it's because they like to ride their bike and they like to work on bikes. Someone's starting a magazine because they like to write and they like to meet people. Well, they're not necessarily great salespeople. So that's all of a sudden you took that off of their plate and then we started buying some of the publications. We bought City Sports, which was a, a competitor of ours and was based in the Bay Area. And then we bought Florida Sports and um, uh, we started a magazine with Competitor Texas. And then we launched up in the Northwest in Portland, Seattle. So we had five. And then our, our uh, the guys from Windy City Sports owned um, Windy City Sports in Chicago, Rocky Mountain in Colorado, and Metro Sports, New York, Boston, and D.C. So, and then we had some independent magazines in there as well. But that became the Gen A Media and Marketing, and you know, all of a sudden, we're we're doing. You've got Gatorade, you've got all the national clients because we can give them, we can give them something the, the national magazines couldn't. We could give them an ad in Southern California and a, and tie it into a retailer that they're using in that region when national magazines couldn't do that. So all of a sudden, our point of differentiation became a real positive. Uh, it wasn't a, we weren't a throwaway anymore. We were a, a necessity. The other thing we did was, uh, I was very involved with the Ironman, and we started doing the official print program for the Ironman World Championship in Kona, uh, starting in like 1990. Well, at that point, Gatorade was a title sponsor of the Ironman, and even though the agency for Gatorade was like, well, you can't advertise in competitor magazines, it's a free, unaudited magazine. And Gatorade was like, they're intimately involved with an event we are title sponsor of. We are advertising in there. So that opened up doors. All of a sudden, Gatorade was in the magazine. Cytomax became part of the magazine. Champion Nutrition, all the different, you know, Cliff Bar, Power Bar. We all the national clients recognized that competitor and Windy City Sports that we were intimate to those regions, and in every one of those regions, you had LA Marathon, eventually Rock and Roll Marathon. You had all the you know the, the Century Rides and all the major events. So you know we changed that perception of free not being worthwhile, and um, that that turned out to be great for everybody. Cool. I want to ask. I've, I've got more marketing questions, but I want to ask. A couple sure. of logistics things. So distribution, you know, when it was still just your one regional competitor magazine, mm -hmm. how did you go about getting the distribution into the stores? Did you have to buy all the news racks and bring them yourself and restock them yourselves? Yeah, the way the way that worked, well, first of all, uh, 
it, it always bothered me that we were, we were primarily in places where you're singing to the choir. We were going into running stores, <laughs> we were going into bike shops, and that's great. But the reality is you are a hardcore bike guy. How many times a year are you going into a bike shop? Maybe three, four. You know, you know, you're not going there every month, which means you're missing my magazine. You're seeing it. You're not really committed to the magazine. You're seeing it three or four times a year. So I needed, and also you've been in those shops. Those shops are cluttered. There's all sorts of crap going on. So I wanted exclusives, and we did an exclusive with Jamba Juice and with Rubio's. Uh, Rubio's, Ralph Rubio had started, it started one of the first triathlon teams out here, and Rubio's was, and I think Rubio's now has 140 locations uh, out here on the, on the West Coast. But back then, they, you know, they had uh, a dozen, 15 locations, but I was going through a lot of magazines. You go to a place like that or to Jamba Juice a few times a week. Right. My, my mentality was uh, early on when I was handing out competitors at the races, and I, I prided myself on every single month I handed out 3,000 magazines at the races. It was really important for me to be visible. It was important for people to, to associate me with the magazine. And if they had questions or ideas or story ideas, that they would, they would reach out and, you know, and tell me what their thoughts were. And I loved that. And a lot of times those were incorporated in their magazine. But the thing that hit me, I had a guy come up to me once, uh, and I was trying to hand him a magazine. He goes, well, I'm not a competitor. I'm like, what do you mean you're not a competitor? He goes, well, that's, you know, that's an elite guy. And I'm like, that's the perception. People thought the word competitor meant elite athlete. So I had to change that. And I told him, I said, you got up at 5 in the morning to come out here and run a 5K. You're competing with the course and you're competing with yourself. You are definitely a competitor. But I couldn't just say that to him. I had to change that. I had to change that perception. I had people needed to be able to pick up the magazine and see that we walk the walk. We we're all about new people getting into the sport. And so that's, to be honest, that was around 1990, uh, after a couple years in a magazine. And that's when I went to local radio station, a sports station called at that time the Mighty 690, now the Mighty 1090, and said, you know, um, I, I would like to, to, to buy radio time. Uh, I'd like to do a show called The Competitors. And my thought was I wanted people to be listening to this radio station, hearing an interview with Magic Johnson or Wayne Gretzky, and then hear an interview with Ned Overend or John Tomac or Dave Scott or Mark Allen and go, oh, if they're on that station, they must be important too. I needed to, I needed to grow the sport. We needed to grow the sport. We needed to be advocates for not just growing my competitor brand, I needed to grow the Dave Scott brand. I needed to grow the Scott Tinley brand. I needed those guys to become stars so our magazine meant something when we covered those stars. <laughs> so all of that went together, and we've actually that show, 8 to 10, every Sunday night since 1990. So every single Sunday night, that show that show still airs. That's and not that you still running part it, of it, is it? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's me. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Yeah. It's called Babbitt, Babbittville. Babbittville every Sunday night. Oh, yeah. Nice. No, we, uh, that's really, really important. It was a great way to, because you can't just do things in a vacuum. You need to be able to get your little niche outside the little niche. I mean, a lot of times when we live within that niche, we feel like, oh, my God, our sport is so amazing. You know, I'm in the sport. You're in the sport. We're amazing. This is great. And meanwhile, your numbers are, 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 are awful. And you're not being successful, but you're commiserating with each other and telling each other how great you are. Well, you need to be able to take your brand and reach it to mainstream so that you find out when mainstream goes, I don't really get what you're doing. 
I don't really understand why you interviewed this guy. Or they say, wow, that was a great story. I, I had no idea that this guy, Mark Allen, was a, you know, was a swimmer and he was going to go to medical school. And next thing you know, he's the best triathlete in the world. And, you know, he was just like me. He was struggling with it to find a career. That type of stuff was important. Yeah. And it was, it was something that, that led us to, to do the things we did. Yeah, that's a, a really good kind of long tail holistic view of it that I think a lot of people don't consider when they're so caught up in the day to day of just trying to get a business going. Um, right. Yeah, the, the seed planting is huge. So that's the other thing is, okay, how do I make this endurance world bigger? Well, we created the Competitor Magazine Endurance Sports Awards. Um, and that became, and so, so here we're honoring, and, and a lot of times our guys, the runners are with runners, the cyclists are with cyclists, the triathletes are with triathletes, and those guys don't even know each other. Maybe they ride a little bit with each other in Boulder or something, but most of the time they're with each other. So I did this endurance awards that we do in February. You get 500 people, and I'd honor, say, uh, from mountain biking, Ned Overend, and from triathlon, Mark Allen. And uh, then we'd have a challenged athlete of the year, because at that point, you know, we had started our Challenged Athletes Foundation. And then a celebrity athlete of the year. And, you know, so we had Will Ferrell coming to the endurance awards <laughs> because he ran the Boston Marathon. I had the host of Entertainment Tonight. I had the host of MTV Sports. And when we honored them, what did they do? They showcased us on MTV. On uh, they showcased us on Entertainment Tonight. And how did us. you How did you line that up? How did you get those people to attend well, the award uh, ceremony? Because Mark Steinus was a host of Entertainment Tonight, and Mark Steinus was dabbling in our world. He was doing triathlons. He had done the Malibu triathlon. He had done some adventure racing with uh, you know Mark Burnett, the guy who started Survivor, was putting on the Eco Challenge and. Uh, so Mark was doing a number of those things and I reached out through, you know, through a friend of a friend. You can always track somebody down, usually through the trainer and said, you know, uh, we'd like to honor Mark at the endurance awards. And he goes, you know, what's the endurance awards? I said, well, it's, you know, we have 500 people coming. It's at SeaWorld, it's in San Diego. We'd like Mark to be our celebrity athlete of the year. And they're like, well, can we film it? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> so. Mar they called, they gave us the label. This is the Academy Awards of Endurance Sports. That's what the label was that they gave us for, the, for that evening. And then when Will Ferrell came, and you can still check out the video online, is uh, Will Ferrell was our Celebrity Athlete of the Year for running 356 at the Boston Marathon. And during the middle of his speech, he stops and takes a gel. You know, he's like, oh, you know, sometimes I need to fuel up for a tough day. And he said, you guys are the greatest athletes in the world, and you don't, get the, you don't get the notoriety you deserve. Well, hearing that from Will Ferrell changes perceptions, especially when in that room he looks around and there's Toyota and there's Gatorade and there's Power Bar and there's all these industry leaders. You know, that, to be honest, that led to us selling the publication. Uh, Peter Englehart was the main man at Outdoor Life Network, and we honored Peter for one, he put a series I started called Muddy Buddy. I, I bartered time with him, and we did a piece on Muddy Buddy on there. We did a piece on the Endurance Awards on there. And we honored him one year because he was covering the Tour de France, and he was covering Eco Challenge for, um, for Outdoor Life Network. And we, you know, for him showcasing our world, we honored him at the banquet. So he oh. comes to the banquet, and at that point he was involved. He was leaving Outdoor Life and going to work in private equity. And Peter looked around that room and was like, oh, my God, every major sponsor is here. Every okay. major person in our industry, there's runners. So this, is an, this is an industry. 
Yeah, hold, then, before you get too far down that path, because I want to talk to you about how you sold the company and stuff. But I, I've got a quick question about like the athlete or the celebrity selection. So when you uh -huh. were when you were looking at this, and not in any way to diminish what these people have accomplished, but like when you were looking at which celebrities to honor and try and bring into the event, was it purely based on what they had accomplished on athletics, or was it also looking at okay, what kind of reach and celebrity status does this person have, and how is that going to benefit? Oh, yeah. it's, it's all about the celebrity. I mean, the deal is you're trying to grow a sport. And it's, you know, again, I believe in win, 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 win. Everybody wins. If Will Ferrell comes to our event, remember, this is this is before he, this was, uh, let's see, oh, no, it was 2003-ish. So I think it was before Anchorman and Old School and a lot of the big ones. But he was still a big, you know, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, Saturday Night Live. Right. But Will being there it was a cool thing for will his his trainer loved it right because great exposure for the trainer a lot of times you go through the trainer for that type of stuff uh media loved it because he was there and we loved it because it took the, the level of the endurance awards i was at the endurance awards and will farrell was there everybody won right that's that's the way this stuff works and i think one of the issues we have now is with the the big corporate guys buying they are, they're worried about their own brand winning. They're not worried about the sport winning. They're not, they don't give one thought to, how do I grow this industry? It's how do I grow my brand? And at the end of the day, when you grow the industry, your brand grows. So it's, it's everybody working together and getting out of their little niche and seeing how everybody can benefit. All right. Okay, so from there, this award ceremony led to the acquisition of your well, the, the award ceremony so it was just another asset so that led to you know peter inglehart uh was then with reached after not long after that left outdoor life went to falconhead which is a private equity firm and reached out to us about uh about potentially doing a he was interested in us the competitor brand i had a series called muddy buddy which was seven events at the time and was the first, um, really the first mud and obstacle related national series. This right. was 1999. And, yeah, and I want to talk to you that. a lot about the events too, because that's that's a whole other side business that's really interesting to me. But um, let's before we get to the full acquisition, let's dive into events. And I did have one other logistics questions with the print. So as you acquired these other regional magazines, you know Rocky Mountain Sports and Chicago, um, the Windy City Sports, and all this, mm. how how did you manage these remote locations in separate offices was it a challenge to keep their culture yes. and their interest well and the main thing was with windy city we bought that after we became after we sold the falcon head right okay. uh, up until then so we the ones i owned and it definitely was challenging we bought florida sports and made that competitor southeast and competitor texas and competitor northwest and um then you know what was city sports competitor norcal it, it it's the challenge is, as a small company that's undercapitalized, what made us successful in San Diego was we were there. We were at the events every weekend. People saw me. People, you know, so you wanted to pick somebody in each region who was sort of a mini you, right, who was, at, who was totally connected with the industry, and we did that. But the problem still becomes the guy's in Florida. He's on an island, right? Um, and, and so it's what's more important to have the person who's totally connected to the region so that the, the people there don't look at them as some carpetbagger or is it better 
to have people in your own office, in your office with the support, with the staff there, with graphic arts, with everything you need, and having you know a sales guy fly into that region to try you know once every month to uh, maintain those relationships. I've seen it both ways, and we struggled with that to be honest, with trying to figure out how to keep the remote locations of connected and successful. I mean, some of them. We, we look, whenever we went into a region, I always called it the, you know, you had the smile states, right? Texas, Florida, Cal, Southern California. You pretty much can train 12 months a year. It gets hot sometimes in Texas and Florida, but you, you have a 12 month market. So in the fly, and then there's a lot of events. And to me, it really comes down, it came down to you need everything's the events. The more events there are, the more retail there is, the more the manufacturing. And that worked out really well for us in those those markets. And Atlanta went the same way as it became part of Competitor Southeast. The hard part was when we went up to a region that didn't quite make a lot of sense, like the Northwest, you had Nike up there, you had Adidas up there, but you really didn't have the depth of events, right? It's a very short window when you can swim in the water up there. It's cold. So it, that that and also... A lot of events were associated with uh, a magazine called Race Center Northwest. So it's like they own most of the events. They weren't going to be advertising it better. <laughs> so we didn't do our due diligence before we moved up to the Northwest. The Northwest is still a great region, but it certainly didn't have the uh, – it wasn't part of the smile states. And those, those worked really, really well. That was – Texas was a natural. You know, you call a retailer in Texas – or a race director and say, what are the plans? I'm going to do 10 events. I'm expanding. I'm expanding. You call somebody up in the Northwest, you know, back then. And it's like, man, I'm hoping to keep the doors open. You know, it's, it's, it's raining again. You know, it's sort of this depressing. <laughs> it's like, so, and there weren't, there weren't as many retailers. There weren't as many events. And it was, uh, you know, it was a real learning experience for us that you stay in your lane. We, we knew we did well in in texas and in florida and then when we bought when when competitor group when it became competitor group in 2008 when falcon had purchased competitor my brand competitor competitor radio the five editions of competitor the seven muddy buddy events the endurance awards everything then at the same time bought seven rock and roll marathons bought inside communications which was velo news and inside triathlon and bought Triathlete Magazine. That was the original purchase. And that became the competitor group. And uh, then, you know, with the way private equity works, it's usually a three to five years before they try to sell. So in that five years, from 2000, or four years, from 2008 to 2012, we grew from seven Muddy Buddies to 18, from seven Rock and Rolls to 34. Uh, it was basically foot down on the accelerator. And, you know, when you, and then in the meantime, bought all the, you know, Windy City, Rocky Mountain, et cetera. So all of a sudden we had 11 editions of competitor with half a million circulation. It was, uh, it was a hectic, hectic time. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, it, it, it they, we outkicked the coverage. You know, we, we went, grew way too fast. And the rock and roll events, to a certain degree, started cannibalizing each other because there was too many of them. And, um, you know, but they're getting that, all that sorted out now. Yeah. Well, let's jump back for a second. So when you had, when it was still just you and you had a Florida operation, a Texas operation, then uh -huh. what, what did you find worked well having uh, somebody on the ground and in the office 
like inside support and outside support? You know what? It it, it was one of those things where we had a, a guy in Florida and a guy in Texas were both um, very connected in the community, and they both were good sales guys. So those both worked really well because they could sell they could sell regular they could sell the bike shop and they could go sell the event directors. Right? They they were very good at that, and they were. You know, the guy in Florida was also race announcing, and the guy in Texas had a tri club. So they were incredibly connected in the community. Yeah. So those worked really, really well. Were you we, able just, to, we struggled finding the right guy. Were you able to retain the same writing staff? Because I imagine it'd be very hard to write about local events and local things from California. Well, you know what? We um, actually it's not that tired, but most of the time the we had a lot of the. Uh, remember, the the magazine was sort of national and regional. So, you know, you had a national story on a national story might be a, a runner out of Texas, right, who's uh, visually impaired and he's your cover story. Uh, but in terms of the local writing, we had local freelancers who were going to the events already. And in, like in Florida, Florida was an existing magazine, so they had a, a stringer group. And Texas, there was guys who were writing for other magazines in the state. So that was that was never a challenge to find, you know, good writers in, in these different markets. A lot of times you had local, uh, the guys who worked at local newspapers, and they were always, who handled the, the endurance beat for, for uh, the Dallas paper or something. Oh, they were always looking for to make a few extra dollars by writing for this as well. And the, mag, the newspaper didn't look at that as competition because most of these guys were freelancers anyways. Right. So, you know, that, that was not the problem. The, 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 air, the people who handled it best, I learned when we bought, when, when Competitor Group bought Rock and Roll, and the way uh, Tim Murphy, who owned Rock and Roll, his, I thought his philosophy worked best. So what he would do is when he launched Rock and Roll Arizona and Rock and Roll San Antonio, he had a person based in his San Diego office who was the point person for that, mag, that, that event. So the, it wasn't like, a, he was dealing. He, he had somebody who was in his office who knew the knew the rock and roll intimately, but because they were going there once a month to that region, they weren't considered some carpetbagger. They were part of the community, and in this day and age, so much of your communication is email and phone, anyways. So you didn't necessarily have to, you know, have to be living there. But the the fact that they were part of the culture of rock and roll. And they were coming into that market and were still intimately involved. That was when, when rock and roll really kicked butt because you had, even though you had someone who didn't live there as the point person, they were totally connected with that region. Right. And people didn't look at them as outsiders. And I think what happens is as you grow from, you know, seven rock and rolls to 34, and that one person who handled one event is now handling five events, that <laughs> makes it a little harder to me intimately involved in, you know, in that specific region. So it, uh, growth causes its own problems. Yeah. So with your events, the muddy buddy one, what was the, yeah. why did you want to start an event side and how did that tie into the magazine business? You know, it's funny. Again, a lot of stuff happens organically. Um, I came back from Ironman in 1980 and just obviously loved the experience and wanted to put on an event that was in October. I'm sorry. The following year, we moved to October in '81. So I came back from, uh, you know, from Ironman wanting to put on an f- event, but you know, nobody was up for anything serious in at Thanksgiving time, right? It's you just on Ironman, but everybody's very fit. So I had, uh, I was invited to do an event in '81 called a Ride and Tie with Horses, 
And um, I'd never ridden a horse before. It was a 28-mile race. It was two people and a horse. And you took turns running and riding a horse. It was east of San Diego. And this friend of a friend said, hey, this guy is a horse rider. He needs someone who's a runner. You won't have to ride the horse much. And I'm like, oh, I'll go do it. So get out there a week before, and he's going to teach me how to ride the horse. I got my helmet on, and you turn, you pull the reins to the left. He goes left. You turn them to the right. They go right. And you're like, what's the big deal here? <laughs> and, but they start the race with a shotgun. And so by the time I got to my horse Shasta at about mile four, and he's tied to a tree, he's like pawing the sky with his hooves, and his new name is Lightning, and I've got to get on this thing. So I get on him, and he's holding his mane, and he's jumping people and rocks, and I'm just trying to not die. And, you know, I get to about, we first 20 miles, I ran 16. He ran four. And by 20, I was looking forward to getting on the horse for the last eight miles because he's got to be tired. And we could just walk in, and I won't die. And while, I'm, while I was riding, you know, while I'm holding on to his mane, I still remember, I'm thinking to myself, this is a cool concept. I got to lose the horse and got to about mile 20 and they're loading Shasta into a little horsey corral. And I'm like, well, what are you guys doing? He goes, well, we just did a vet check and his hooves are sore. His hooves are sore. <laughs> I've been running for 16 miles. I'm a little something for the effort. So I ended up having to run the last eight miles. And the only thing that kept going through my head was this is a cool concept. I got to get rid of this 3000 pound thing that he can, that needs two tons of food a day and craps everywhere. Nobody's got one of these in their garage. So came back and this is really before mountain bikes were invented. So I got a buddy of mine who had a local bike shop and he had these butt bikes, cruiser bikes, right? That you rent on the beach, you know, you'd ride them on the boardwalk. They're all rusted out. And I, for Thanksgiving, I had him bring them out to this Canyon and we did a, you know, a, what I call the riding time on Thanksgiving. And I wore a Turkey outfit and, stuffed animals all over the course every animal you brought back is worth time off your total time had a spam station it's sort of an anti-event right you could no rules i could take your bike so the way it worked is i'd start on the bike and go a mile leave the bike start running you'd run up get on the bike and ride by me and we'd leapfrog right across the way that was the concept and it was it was a blast and all of a sudden this thing starts growing i remember scott tinley showed up with a mountain bike i think it was like <laughs> an 82 or something and we were like oh my god what the hell is that it's got gears people had a, and so all by iron man guys mark allen scott tinley all these guys it was the entry fee was 10 cans of food per team and we just you know it was all about just having fun. in fact i still have a storage unit with 300 stuffed animals in it which for <laughs> some reason i don't get rid of so anyways but, you know, you would, on uh, Thanksgiving, uh, the turkey, any stuffed turkey, any, you know, thing that was a turkey or anything I deemed a turkey was worth 10, 10 minutes. And so it was a combination of, of running fast and riding fast, but also collecting stuff. And um, I did the, the, the championship belts were made out of foil and had big, like, welcome turkey signs. And so it got to the point where we're getting 250 people are showing up, 100, you know, 125 teams of two are showing up. And there's no entry fee, no permits, just a total goof. I'm in my turkey costume for Thanksgiving, a bunny suit for Easter. And it's, you know, this crazy thing. And in 98, we were meeting with the president of Brooks, a guy named Bruce Pettit, to try to sell him advertising and competitor. And he goes, listen, guys, I, I can't compete with Nike and Adidas in terms of advertising, but if you could come up with a cool event, I'd be willing to title sponsor it for Brooks. I'm like, well, what if we took this ride and tie thing I've been doing 
and we you know, make it a little more formal so you can't just grab somebody's bike and throw it in the woods. We'll, we'll put obstacles every mile, make it a 10K so anybody can do it, put obstacles every mile, and you have to, when you come to the obstacle, you get off your bike and start running, and then your buddy runs up, does the obstacle, grabs a bike, and rides by you. And because it's a leapfrog event, I could wear a frog outfit. And that became Muddy Buddy. And it grew from, we did uh, four events, year one in 99, and then Brooks had a change of management, and they, they weren't going to do it at all the following year in 2000. And I convinced them to do one, and then we bought it from them and grew it to seven events by 2007. And um, we had touched a nerve. You know, we were getting... Oh gosh, two, three thousand folks coming out to each Muddy Buddy. And I only promoted it. The other byproduct was the only place I promoted Muddy Buddy was in Competitor Magazine. So, you know, or in our sister magazine. So I had an event in Chicago with Windy City Sports and had an event in Austin, Texas with, uh, uh, at that point with Competitor Texas and with in NorCal with Competitor NorCal. So, you know, in Rocky Mountain Sports, we used for our event at the Boulder Reservoir and we sold out every event. So we were able to say, you wonder if our magazine works? The only place we advertise this event series is with our magazines, and we sell them all out. So that led to a lot of other folks going, huh, I guess that magazine does work. So, you know, it was, it was really it was great on a number of levels. One, Muddy Buddy became very successful, and, and really the main reason I sold the brand and the company was because of Muddy Buddy, because I knew somebody was going to come out and come out with a 10, 12 event mud obstacle series and kick my ass and i couldn't do anything about it at that point if we wanted to grow uh we had to you know we're talking 100k for us to add a new muddy buddy event each year and at that point i'm 55 my partner lois is 60 are we going to take out big loans on our house are we going to go get a partner who could screw us or are we going to sell and at that point it was like if we sell someone could get us from seven events to 13 uh, quickly, which is exactly what happened. And that's really the main reason uh, that we sold the brand was to get Muddy Buddy, uh, to expand Muddy Buddy as quickly as possible. So with the Muddy Buddy series, did that become a more profitable venture than the uh, magazine? I did become more profitable, but it became a, a great profit center for the publication because it also gave us another asset to provide to clients, right? A different asset. So we brought Land Rover on board. And we had Brooks as the title. And it was just one of those things that just gave you more, the more assets you have that are all you. Uh, that, you know, so we had, I had you know, the radio, I had the endurance awards, you, you, we had the magazines, we were doing special editions of the magazine. So you, you had a lot of different things that you could sell to clients. So you're giving them touch points. And the key is to give them lots of touch points, but all the touch points are you. Yeah. How did you manage all that? Because that's a lot going on. Um, you know, we had an outside group, Michael Epstein, who put on Malibu, put on the Muddy Buddy for us, and he was awesome. So you um, contracted somebody to run the events? Contract, yep, contracted. I've always believed in, you know, you surround yourself with great people and get the hell out of the way. So that Michael was the best, and he helped take Muddy Buddy to another level, and I'd have to think about it. You know, we I, obviously I went to the events and dressed in my frog suit, but I was not putting cones or you know, doing the obstacles. Michael and his team were doing all that and got the semi and we, you know, we logoed up the semi. So it was, um, you know, it was, it, 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 it all worked together. And I've always been a firm believer in that muddy buddy. We drove people to adventure. 
to try new things out. And it, again, because it was you're running three miles, one mile at a time, and riding three miles, one mile at a time. You know, we who we were. You know, you got the Disney with four thousand people. You got two thousand mountain bikes. Two thousand mountain bikes is probably one of the bigger mountain bike events in the country. And what people liked it, and of course, a lot of these bikes looked like they hadn't been out of the garage in thirty years. But that got people on a bike. And that was one of my big pushes to the to the cycling industry um, was, guys, these are brand new people. These people are way more important to you and your bottom line than going out to these Norbert National races where everybody's looking for free stuff. <laughs> so, you know, you really should be investing in new people, which, you know, to their discredit, the cycling industry has totally ignored from day one. So that, that was always one of my biggest frustrations. I, I couldn't get the cycling industry to understand the value of something like Muddy Buddy, the value of something like Rock and Roll Marathon. They're like, oh, yeah, well, we we know that every runner eventually needs to ride a bike, but we'll worry about that later. Yeah. Like, well, in, well, interesting. The flip side of that is I think, you know, like I for a little while I tried to start Triathlon Rumor, and there's been some other triathlon website startups. And what I've heard and experienced myself was um, – I could not even get a running company to send us a press release on new shoes uh, or a returned email to say, hey, thanks for the interest. Nothing. And it was, you know, the response generally was that triathlon is so small compared to the whole recreational runner market that they just don't care. So it's it's weird that these industries ignore, you know, decent sized chunks of new consumers just because it's not what they know. Well, and what they don't understand, and then one of the, but it's a, to a certain degree, when Competitor Magazine, when we were purchased and they made Competitor into a running magazine, we were sort of this welcome mat for all different sports. When, when Competitor became a running magazine, uh, I think it really hurt them. And it hurt the sport because the sport of triathlon through Competitor would get three covers a year focused on the Ironman or focused on the sport of triathlon. And then all of a sudden, when it became a running magazine, uh, the sport basically disappeared. I mean, the only national magazines that that showcase triathlon or what triathlete and lava, which are very small magazines. So the sport basically disappeared. And that I think has been a huge part of, uh, you know, of the fact that the sport has been somewhat flat. Now we're, you know, we're turning some stuff around where people are understanding that you want to get new people doing your sport. You better work your ass off. So, you know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Right. Well, and, and that brings me to one of my questions for you. So I'm not sure when this happened exactly from the time that you started with, uh, well, you continued on with competitor group after you sold it for about four years, right? Yeah, I did. I, I actually a little longer. We sold in 08. We sold again in 2012 to Calera. And then uh, I, I stayed on till August of 14 and then went off and launched Babbittville. Right. And so during yeah. that time, you know, my impression of, and this is kind of when I became more aware of Bella News and what was going on with this guy, but my impression of the competitor magazines has always been, that they were basically advertising vehicles for their running events. And so it's probably That's what they became. about yep. the time yep. that they transitioned to covering only running. So it's, um, right. yeah, it was, it's just an interesting thing. It seems like a, a Well, that's loss. true. And that was actually one of, uh, one of the, the, the big issues is, is if the magazine has six or seven rock and roll ads in it, is, you know, it, it, do other race directors want to be in there? They look at it and go, well, wait, this is just a vehicle for it. It was one thing if I had Muddy Buddy in the magazine. Because uh, we had one event, and Muddy Buddy didn't get anything that any other event director couldn't get in terms of, you know, we, we paid for the ads that were for Muddy Buddy in Windy City Sports. 
with so, the, you know. So with when it made the switch to those gears, then why was that? Was that because the rock and roll or rock and road marathons were so much more of the profit center for that company? Absolutely. Something? Yep. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. The rock and roll marathons are really where you, know, you got a city paying you to come. You've got the expos. You've got entry fees. There, there's there's revenue streams everywhere. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Just, let's talk about that because that was one of the most fascinating things you told me is that when you started, you were like begging for a permit to go have an event in this city and then completely flip that around to where the cities were begging you and paying you guys to come there. So you were making money yeah, at well, every not, angle. Right. And not so much me because I wasn't putting on events, but I, I put on Muddy Buddy and Muddy Buddy, we didn't, nobody was giving us that. But in terms of rock and roll, rock and roll and Iron Man, though, that's the, the business model is for both of those. And that's what makes those, those series so successful is the cities. Well, you know, cities have had a lot of budget cuts, and they're trying to fill up hotels. And these events fill up hotels. You know, something like a, a Vegas, Rock and Roll Vegas, if there's 44,000 people doing Rock and Roll Vegas, and you're doing, you know, they're doing three nights, and then you've got all the volunteers, et cetera, you're doing north of 150, 160,000 hotel nights. And when you're in a city like that where the finish line, within one mile diameter of the finish line, um, uh, one mile from the finish line, there's 50,000 hotel rooms. That lifeblood of that city is filling up hotel rooms. So a city like Vegas, a city like Phoenix, where you know all of a sudden the, the first year of rock and roll Arizona was 37,000 people in January. And it's not like the Super Bowl that comes every 20 years. It's every year. So you're talking food, you're talking hotels, you're talking car rental, you're, all that is something you can count on. So the events when I was when we were first getting going, getting permits to do events in these downtown areas, the cities were like, "We don't need you. You're just blocking off our churches and you're a pain in the butt." Well, now they're a revenue generator, a huge revenue generator. So it's they they will pay for rock and roll. They will pay for Ironman. Ironman comes in and people come in for five days, maybe six days. Plus, what they don't take into account, you know, when people are doing Ironman Lake Placid. Uh, they might be coming there for training weekends for, you know, two, three training weekends leading into the race. So all that hotel revenue, these, these our events, when it comes to running and triathlon are big business and the cities recognize that. And they, they are always, their convention and visitor bureaus are always looking to get these events to come their way. So without giving up anything, you can't, uh, I mean, I'm just so curious, like ballpark, what do you think, Vegas values that marathon at like what not not in terms of revenue for the city like what are what do you think they're paying out ballpark oh I, you know I don't know what they're paying out but I you know you're you're talking over over time hundreds of millions of dollars that are coming through these events hmm. I mean what other event is going to Phoenix that is going to generate you know uh, 130,000 hotel nights right over three days it's just not happening. And the, mo the interesting part is a lot of these races, there people do travel. Now it was the big moment for both Ironman and for rock and roll is for rock and roll. We knew people were going to travel for a marathon, but will they travel for a half marathon or is that going to become a local event? And the same with Ironman, people will travel for a full, will they travel for 70.3? And in yeah. both cases, the answer was yes, they will travel for, for those. And once they, once everybody realized that people will travel, 
then there was huge value for not just the full Ironman, not just the full rock and roll, but for that, you know, for a 70.3 and for a half. So how far down do you think that scales with, you know, like say a, a Spartan race that maybe brings three to 6,000 people in for a two day weekend? You know, well, you know what? And that's, that's the thing. I don't know. And a lot of times with Spartan is similar to Muddy Buddy. They're out in the middle of nowhere, right? You're out in a ski resort. So yeah, true. if you're going to the ski resort and the ski resort's looking for business for the summer, that that's probably where their revenue is coming from because they're not doing them for the most part. They're not doing them in downtown areas. So they're in the ski resort and you assume the ski resorts are bidding to get those events. Now I can't imagine that they're paying what a city is paying for a rock and roll or for an Ironman, but they might be because Spartan races can bring, you know, 15 to 20,000 people. Yeah. So, I mean, the short of it is if you're bringing people, you probably shouldn't be paying for the venue. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You should be getting the venue for free. No, no question about that. What else do you think? I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, like I've put on a couple of small events, 24 hour mountain bike race and stuff, and I've got friends that still do, you know, when they, when they pitch these areas, like who else can you go after or who do you target the chamber of commerce to start or the actual venue owner? Um, if you're talking, well, yeah, you, it's a venue owner. If you're talking outside, you know, if it's not, the, if it's private, um, if it's private, yeah, it's a venue owner. And then it's, um, uh, then it's the, you know, the city or usually you'd start with convention and visit girl. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I just want to call out like why that's important from a, a business standpoint is because it's not just getting permits and everything that they can make easier, but you know, if you got to close streets, they're paying for the police to do that. They're playing for the barricades, you know, they're paying for a lot of things on top of paying you to come in. So there's, there's tremendous, exactly. not just savings, but profit to be made for doing something like that. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. So once you sold a competitor group, what how did your your role change? Well, um well my role changed because competitor became a running magazine, so I moved out of the day to day of competitor and um was just sort of involved. They had bought a triathlon series called Tri Rock and uh then the endurance awards went away and they closed muddy buddy so then i left there in in uh august of four july or august 2014 just to do the things i like to do which is to uh you know which is to work with our challenge athletes foundation which is to you know race a lot i think i did 40 races last year and do my uh the breakfast show we just did a show from boston we did 26 interviews over three days facebook live and and uh, we'll be going back to Kona and doing the show from there. So just doing the things I like to do. Was that tough for you to watch them kind of systematically close off all the things that you had built that were fun? Uh, you know, it was hard, but you knew that. I had a buddy of mine um, before I sold, and he said, listen, you know what? Uh, Sally might be the best thing for you, but just understand one thing. They're going to tell you that, hey, we believe in your vision and we're going to fund your vision. What they're, if you read between the lines, what they're saying is, we think you're undervalued. We can do this way better than you can. And the sooner we can shove your ass out of here, the better. So you know, as long as you understand that nobody's funding your vision, that they're, they're paying for it, it's their game, and they can do whatever they want. Once you come to grips with that, then, it's, it's, you know, then, then you, your sanity will return. But it, it's very difficult to watch your baby go in a different direction when especially when you know it's not the right direction right 
So the new things that you're but, doing yeah. since then, like the Babbittville radio and, uh -huh. um, and, and don't let me forget at some point, I want you to tell us about your Kona parties, but let's, let's stick to the business for a minute. So like the Babbittville radio, the podcast that you're doing, what's, what's the end goal with that? Are you just doing this for fun or is this another business? That's a business. I, I sell my own sponsors to the different, uh, different shows I do. And, um, uh, but it's, you know, it's business, but my business has always been enjoying every minute of it. So it's, you know, that stuff's really, really important to make sure that if I'm interviewing fun people and, and, uh, you know, telling good stories and going to events I like to go to Boston and Kona are just two classic events and just some great, great history, great stories. So the, those are two places I like to be. And then, you know, we have our, our, uh, San Diego triathlon challenges, our CAF weekend and, we have our Heroes Heart and Hope Gala. You know, you know just a lot of different different things uh, that that um, you know, over time. I think we did it through competitor. We've done it through Challenge Athletes Foundation, through Muddy Buddy. Is we've seen the stories, the human part of what we do, and we love that. And that's that's something that uh, that continues to keep me motivated every single day. Cool. All right, tell us about your Kona party. My Kona party. Okay. Well, my Kona party is, I thank God, on that racing party. We do it the night before the Ironman. And a number of years ago, we realized that people are, you know, if, if you're racing, you're in a fetal position under the couch going, I can't believe I'm racing tomorrow. And everybody else doesn't really want to stand there and watch you. So I decided we'd have a little get together and uh, just to do it as sort of a goof and do medals and t shirts uh, that said, I mean, medals and hats that said TGINR. Thank God I'm not racing. Swim 0.0, .0 bike 0.0, .0 run 0.0, .0 brag for the rest of your life, and have Ironman champions putting the medals around your neck as you as you come to the party, and then everybody just has a great time. And it's been, uh, you know, we close it off with about 400 folks, and it's uh, it's a hoot. So we have we have we have a great time, and Ironman Week is very very special. Yeah, it's nuts. I, and I heard about that from somebody else, so you know it's legendary. But uh, cool. Well, that's kind of. My business questions for you. Do you want to share a Thanks. couple of minutes about the Challenge Athletes Foundation? Or if you're short on time, sure. I can always put a link to it. Yeah, uh, just a, a quickie on the Challenge Athletes Foundation. So, again, everything really started through a competitor. We, uh, uh, there was a gentleman named Jim McLaren who was a 300-pound football player at Yale. And in 1985, he was taking acting classes in New York, was hit by a bus, went into his motorcycle, and thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival, lived, but ended up losing his lower leg, and came back from that to run a 316 marathon, go 1042 in Kona, and realized at that point that uh, you know he was very well, very recognizable as the one-legged guy who was kicking ass, and he was using a prosthetic leg, which today would be considered prehistoric. It was way before the C-Sprint or any of the other high-tech products that are out there. And for, and, for uh, reference, then, yeah. a 10.42 at Kona is insane. Like, what's what's a winning it's top 20%, championship time? Top 20%. Uh, the, the winner goes low eight hours. And so, he, you know, back then, the winner was going, oh, yeah, the Mark Allen's time was it was 8.09 at that point. So And a lot yeah, of people are finishing the, uh, in, like, what, 12, 13, 14 hours. Yeah, yeah. Over there now, most of the folks are finishing, yeah, yeah, 12 hours-ish. 
but it goes you 17 hours to cut off. But 10:42 for a guy missing a leg is, is pretty amazing. It's wicked fast. So, anyways, that's when I started covering Jimmy through competitor. We became buddies, and then eight years later, he was racing in Orange County and was on his bike when a van hit the back of his bike, propelled him in a pole head first. He became a quadriplegic. And at that point, um, myself and two buddies of mine, Jeffrey Asikon, Rick Kozlowski, decided that we were going to put on a little triathlon. And from covering wheelchair athletes or competitor, I'd learned from interviewing guys who'd been paralyzed, the worst part about being paralyzed was being 25 or 30 years old and having mom and dad come back in your life. No sense of self or independence. So the goal became, let's get Jimmy a van. He can drive his hands. We'll raise 25K. And that was the goal. So the goal was 25. We put this little triathlon out at La Jolla Cove, and we raised 49. We're all set to buy Jimmy the van, and three amputee gals come up to us. Go, you know, it's great what you guys are doing. Jimmy's the guy who got us into endurance. But did you know that your health insurance will cover a walking around leg or an everyday chair, but anything to do with sport is considered a luxury item. It's not covered. So we decided to get our 5013C, and if someone needed a piece of equipment or training expenses or travel expenses to stay in a game of life through sport that the challenge athletes foundation would be there for them. And now we're 24 years in this month, we're sending out uh, 2,448 grants totaling about $3.7 million. And we've raised now over $80 million wow. uh, through challenge athletes foundation. So it's been, it's been amazing. People can check out challengedathletes.org. We've got uh, great stuff out there. Our stories, our videos on our athletes is, is pretty special. Awesome, man. That's fantastic. I had no idea you guys had raised so much money. Good job. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so you've got a lot going on, so what I'm going to have you do is just email me a list of all the links to the radio show and the podcast and everything else, and we'll include sure. that in the show notes. Happy to. And uh, yeah, man, thanks, thank man. you so much for your time. All right, bye. Talk to you. Talk to you. If you haven't checked out any of my show notes before, this one's worth a look. My post-game analysis on this episode is longer than usual because there's just so much good stuff packed into this conversation. Two things I want to call out. First, it's how Bob found ways to boost surrounding businesses because he knew their health meant more business for him. If more people were participating in events, they'd need to buy more gear and advertisers would need to reach them. And by putting those events, products, and retailers in his magazines and making it easier than ever to find the magazines, he was closing the loop and helping everyone grow. The other fascinating part is the business model behind events. If you're thinking of putting on any type of event, you can position it to attract the largest possible audience. If you're bringing in thousands of people, chances are pretty good the host location is willing to make it worth your while. And if they aren't, find one that will and see what else you can get out of them for free to further boost your bottom line. Just a reminder, I'm answering entrepreneurship questions on Quora, so find me, Tyler Benedict, there and ping me to answer your question. Or just message me through social media, I'm happy to respond there too. I'm at The Build Cycle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, keep building.